Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The Trump administration revoked the security clearance of former CIA director John Brennan yesterday. Sarah Huckabee Sanders read a statement from the president. Additionally, Mr. Brennan has recently leveraged his status as a former high-ranking official with access to highly sensitive information to make a series of unfounded and outrageous allegations, wild outbursts on the Internet and television about this administration. Mr. Brennan's line and recent conduct characterized by increasingly frenzied commentary is wholly inconsistent with access to the nation's most closely held secrets and facilities, the very aim of our adversaries, which is to sow division and chaos. More broadly, the issue of Mr. Brennan's security clearance raises larger questions about the practice of former officials maintaining access to our nation's most sensitive secrets long after their time in government has ended. Such access is particularly inappropriate when former officials have transitioned into highly partisan positions and seek to use real or perceived access to sensitive information to validate their political attacks. Ms. Sanders also said that the president's considering yanking the security clearances of lots of other former officials, Michael Hayden, the former head of National Security Agency, James Clapper, former director of national intelligence, Susan Rice, national security advisor, Sally Yates. Uh, there's a few other people on the list. Let's talk about what's happening now with Steve Clemens, Washington editor-at-large for The Atlantic and MSNBC national security contributor. Good to talk with you again, Steve Clemens. Good to be with you, Uh, When you get down to the nub of it and get over all the irony and all the circus and all the potential (laughs) intimidation and all the real intimidation of this, is that what's there? What 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 is the nub of this thing? I I think you know when you get down to it, most of the people that have been put on Donald Trump's new enemy list um, are not the kind of people that would depend upon or. Have, have access. This is a gratuitous gut punch to his political enemies. And what I think it means is something that's far deeper than this moment. It means that that when we have a you know the escalation and the wars within what I used to call the strategic class in Washington have become much, much worse. And when you begin to consider a time when either the Democrats may take back the House or you get a shift in the power, or you get a next president uh, after Donald Trump, uh, potentially a Democrat. Um, it's going to be hard for them to play Mr. Nice Guy. Uh, the circle of vindictiveness and revenge is going to continue for a while. You know, we've talked a lot in the past about people like John Bolton. You know, John Bolton, at his most cantankerous and his most critical of, of, of Barack Obama, would never have thought of taking this action. You know, or an action against John Bolton. You know, during the Iraq War, after the Iraq War, when there was so much uh, anger about Paul Wolfowitz or Don Rumsfeld or Dick Cheney or some of Dick Cheney's people, this this kind of action was not taken by by presidents. So what we have is a very big escalation uh, in in the political battles, and it's ironic, as you just said, because of Michael Flynn and other people who have had difficulty getting. Uh, their own clearances inside the Trump White House that this would be a strategy that they would take. But what this means today is a deep, ongoing battle uh, within the national security establishment for years to come. The president is trying to get everybody in our society to choose what side they're on, though, aren't they? He's, you know, attacking the press 
as the enemy of the people. And the press is pushing back today saying we're not the enemy of the people. Uh, And he's saying these people are the enemy of the state. And uh, he wants everybody to choose a side. And this will probably ratchet up and continue to accelerate towards election season. Yeah, I, I absolutely think that's it. And I think that one of the challenges with Donald Trump as he paints villains and victims, uh, you know, as he sees it himself as a victim and just about everyone else as a villain, uh, is he's forcing a choice in the country, which a lot of people are accepting. It's Donald Trump all the way on everything with no criticism. It's a very authoritarian tactic. Um, it's not Donald Trump a framework of ideas, a framework of policies. There's not many people who can go out and really explain what the meaning and purpose of Donald Trump is in the world, except a kind of pugnacious nationalism, I suppose. But but what what you know, Donald Trump ch- changes and shifts himself quite a bit, and he does not like to be called on those shifts. He does not like to be called on, you know, uh, at, at on one hand sanctioning uh, China with all sorts of tariffs, but then allowing ZTE, this company, to escape that. So even the people around Donald Trump are being forced into a situation to never tell the emperor he has no clothes or they will be cast out or punished uh, or made to pay a price in some way. That's for the friends. When you get to the enemies, uh, just watch out on every front. And and it's really strange that the last straw on Mr. Brennan seems to be his uh, pushback on uh, the president calling one of his former associates a dog. Uh, he <laughs> and then and he he, uh, he, he uh, Brennan tweeted about that and pushed back, and that seemed to be it. Well, you know, I, I th- that may be it, but before that, you know, CIA Director John Brennan has been one of the most vocal. He's not the only one, certainly, that has been out there raising major questions about Donald Trump's assault on the intelligence establishment uh, through many waves of assaults. Uh, and questioning and doubting the solvency of the intelligence community's reports on Russia and its meddling in the elections. Highly substantive things that he's been uh, calling the president out and not calling the president a traitor, but getting to the verge of that in saying the president is an unwitting agent of Russian interests today. Those kinds of things have clearly gotten under the skin of Donald Trump. Uh, and honestly, most people um, you know, share. John Brennan is expressing authentic and legitimate perspectives of a, a, a significant portion of the population that is perplexed by Donald Trump's um, attempted love affair with Vladimir Putin while he bullies and beats up and harasses so many American allies. And so I think in that in that environment, um, yeah, maybe it was the Omarosa dog uh, notion that finally put uh, Donald Trump over that. But I, I think that the issue, you know, more importantly, is that uh, the Omarosa story was a four-day story in major national headlines, uh, and and Donald Trump may have seen this as an opportunity to change the conversation. I'm talking with Steve Clemens, Washington editor-at-large of The Atlantic and MSNBC national security contributor. We're talking about John Brennan and the, revokish, uh, revoke, the president revoked his security clearance yesterday. In a few minutes, we'll be talking about the Tokyo 2020 Olympics and what they mean for residents living near Fukushima. Uh, I wanted to um, kind of bring home the points that John Brennan made in his editorial today in the New York Times, where he really came down and said, um, this is all about what is happening with the Russia investigation and 
Uh, we, we, you know, the president's relationship with Russia, claims of no collusion or hogwash, according to Brennan. Uh, and he is worried about the security clearance uh, for uh, Mr. Mueller and, and, and others who are investigating uh, the president. What do you make of that route? I, I am uh, convinced that John Brennan is uh, probably on the right course with his criticism in the sense that those of us who watch Donald Trump at a micro level every day from the very beginning have seen uh, an obsession by the president uh, with the Russia investigation and efforts to try to uh, distract from that. Uh, and so no, no matter what you go back, you go back a year ago, year and a half ago, you would see different antics in the, in, in, you know, that would come from the White House. And those of us who were writing about this or reporting or commenting, you know, all kind of knew, and we knew from our inside sources inside the White House, that these were, um, that this theater was done for distraction uh, and that the president was pri- privately raging and so une- at unease about what was happening with the Russia investigation. You have to remember, we're all sitting, you know, sort of like in, in, in Plato's world, looking for shadows of, you know, what Mueller's doing and what the president knows. But one has to assume that the president has always, uh, uh, the president has always understood and known what the, what the reality may be. And we're all trying to understand and, you know, learn that as it goes on. Uh, but, but I think Brennan is right that, that this is about deeper issues than either Omarosa or about the things that John Brennan says on MSNBC. Are you surprised how little we've learned from the Manafort trial? There just doesn't, I mean, we all knew what Manaf- what kind of creature Manafort was, and this is underlined in the trial, but it didn't really, um, didn't really do anything for the Mueller investigation, didn't forward it in any way. I am surprised not by the Mueller investigation issues. I thought more would come out about Oleg Deripaska, about Russian oligarchs, about Ukrainian oligarchs, and about others that were tied into the Putin world. And so I agree with you that while we look at the issues of tax and bank, um, tax evasion and bank fraud questions that are being deliberated now, I think the broader question is, how does all of that fit within a vulnerability to other potential um, essentially, you know, treasonous actions against the U.S. government or within the presidential campaign. And I don't know if that is a next piece sitting out there, but I was intrigued, as, as you seem to be, uh, that more of that hasn't leaked out as part of the context in which this was being debated. But I think Mueller and his team and the Department of Justice just ran a very serious assault on what they could really do to hammer Manafort, who was completely uncooperative, uh, in an effort, I think, that to potentially turn him uh, into a more pliable witness on other things in, the, in what will be Manafort 2.0. Uh, what do you think about the other people who were uh, named by Ms. Sanders and have been named previously? They're all critics of the president. Um, oh, it's an enemies list. It's you know, Susan it's an, it's Rice. An, it, it's, it's Jim Clapper. But, you I mean, you look at, like, Jim Clapper. Jim Clapper has served the administration. He's, like, one of the most famous guys. You know, and one of the things that, you know, I would put out there is – but even John Brennan, James Clapper, these are people that Republicans and Democrats applauded, but more Republicans before for 
uh, during the Obama administration on what they were doing with um, drone activity. Prob- I had real problems with what the Obama administration was doing. I thought it was extrajudicial uh, international killing. There were a lot of criticisms of the president. And these guys were the ones that were taking down what was then Al Qaeda, later ISIS, um, in a in a series of kind of, you know, what what I hate using the term, but they it, it was the Obama iteration of the global war on terror and they were at the forefront of it so many national security hawks see john brennan and james clapper as true heroes of that ilk and i was one of the people who was critical of kind of unfettered power along that line this is what's so interesting is that trump is going after someone who had a very muscular anti-terror role uh, as did you know some of the other people that have been named, uh, and I think that it that it 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 as I said it is going to deliver to us an ongoing round of vendettas in the national security realm uh, and and a series of revenge because it's going to be very hard for Democratic administration down in the future not to punish the next John Bolton types or not to demonstrate an equal muscularity in response. And I worry about that for the country because having that sort of division uh, in our most important national security um, institutions weakens the country and uh, I think threatens the country. And you certainly saw that yesterday in Sarah Huckabee's statement. She um she went right after uh, John Brennan on a series of things. He lied to Congress. He's un-American. He's he's got all these um, uh, violations of dereliction of duty that he was responsible for. And you could go up and down the line with some of these national security people and and make some similar cases. Oh, I mean, I think that's right. I mean, I think they. I mean, I think anybody operating in that environment now. Uh, is going to feel insecure about their place and role in the future, about insecure about whether their institution will have their back. The rules have changed. Gravity has changed. There's just no doubt about it. Donald Trump is turning out to be a highly consequential president, changing so many of the norms of national security, how courts have worked, what you can get away with, uh, and whether one likes it or not. Uh, you know, when, when people were looking for Barack Obama to be a transformative president in many ways, um, he disappointed many folks. Donald Trump is a transformative president. He is transforming the system. We'll all have to look at the either what he's built or the wreckage later, look at what's happening. But certainly um, gravity is changing in the way the political realm works and the status quo is, is you know, is, is no longer there in, in any of these institutions. And I think that they are willing to play a kind of, you know, to play off Chris Matthews and MSNBC's hardball, hardball in ways that nobody had the the either the backbone to do in the past or the um, recklessness to do, because there are going to be real consequences to what we see unfolding now. These are not trivial things. They're they're going to have uh, generation long consequences in how the United States is perceived in the world, whether its allies trust it, whether the intelligence uh, arena is now a sacred arena that was beyond politics. Now it's become highly politicized. All of these are flowing from what Donald Trump and Sarah Huckabee Sanders did yesterday. All right. And so, but if the national security establishment wants to push back, are all its marbles on the Mueller investigation? I would say a lot of the marbles are because if we go through all of this and they don't find or charge um, those around the president, you know, this is Don Jr. and others with with any form of high crimes uh, after all of this effort and all of this tumult then it will be a solid score for Donald Trump's 
paranoia and a justification for the kinds of things he's been doing. Uh, so, so the Mueller outcomes, the Mueller deliverables are extremely important at this point because um, we don't know. I mean, I, I, I admire John Brennan's certainty, but I don't know what, what, what he has or doesn't have. We certainly know a lot that uh, the, uh, uh, the president certainly uh, hung out with Russia and Russians and had much more interplay between Russia and his campaign than he admit, admitted to. So there are lies all over the place. But the, but the broader question is that those fabrications or mistruths um, don't seem to matter to a significant uh, portion of the public. And that is what makes the Mueller investigation so important. If the Mueller investigation comes up short, it will justify and, get, and rationalize all of the Trump administration's behavior. If he comes up with something, it better be strong. Uh, and I think that's game changing and does give uh, the intelligence community another time at bat. Steve Clemens is Washington Editor-at-Large for The Atlantic and MSNBC National Security Contributor. Thanks a lot for joining us. Good talking with you. My pleasure, Jerome. Thank you. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about what Tokyo's 2020 Olympics means for the residents living near Fukushima. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The Fukushima nuclear disaster happened in 2011. The recovery effort continues to present nearby residents with difficult choices. With me is Norma Field, Professor Emeritus in Japanese Studies at the University of Chicago, and Yuki Miyamoto. She is an ethicist and Associate Professor of Religious Studies at DePaul University. Both are back from Japan, where they um, were talking with people and active on this issue. Nice to see you both. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. Uh, Could you tell us a little about uh, the 2020 Olympics? And um, it would... uh, it kind of – I heard that there are going to be softball games near Fukushima and some baseball f- facilities there. Um, what does this mean for the, the residents around here, Norma? It's not near Fukushima. It's going to be – they're going to be in Fukushima. I, I guess I can't um, – A- and, and the uh, Olympic torch, remember the torch? That relay will begin in Fukushima. So I would say this is we, what we're seeing is the best defense is a good offense. If anyone's worried about Fukushima safety, well, we're going to start the torch there and we're going to actually have games there and we will have athletes facilities there. So it's got to be safe, right? <laughs> um, Yuki, you, you were there. What is it like there now? We, I, I, don't, I don't think most people here un, kind of get that. In Fukushima, you yeah. mean? Um, well, it seems like what what has been bothering me, well, Norma and me, uh, us, is that um, people's good intention has been exploited or misused. In other words, people, of course, want to go back. People, of course, want to lead a normal life. And then that seems to be 
um, misused or even abused by the government to make things normal for the Olympic Games. So people seem to be torn. In other words, of course, you know, they want to lead a normal life and other people outside of Fukushima, they also want to help rest- restoring Fukushima and people's lives. And so they are sort of um, not ignoring, uh, acknowledging the danger, but maybe downplaying it. Uh, so they are sometimes feeling like, well, is it safe to be here? But at the at the same time, it is important for us to restore the community. And so people's always kind of going back and forth and struggling with it. That seems to me my impression. You know, I've talked with you before and we discussed uh, some groups who are doing their own measurements of radioactivity in their community and they would run and they would dig in the soil and, and find things and, uh, and surprising things at times. Uh, and there are uh, radiac- radio um, uh, things where you can measure radiation in, on the streets and things mm-hmm. in some areas in Fukushima. Mm-hmm. There are um, so there are citizens, independent citizens groups, and they've become um, fantastically expert from very early on. People often remark about how much studying Fukushima people have done. But there are also um, government, what are called monitoring posts, that were set up a year or two after the disaster, so so late, and they're found typically in front of train stations, schoolyards, um, kindergartens, and whatnot, and they measure the. Um, air dosage of radiation. And just uh, in May, I believe, the Nuclear Regulation Authority, which is the the new establishment that was set up after the disaster because the old one was clearly in cahoots with the, the uh, nuclear industry. So this independent group said that it's time for us now to get rid of, to remove these monitoring posts because they're no longer necessary. Um, will only keep them in the areas that people can't return to yet, which have uh, enormously been reduced, by the way. So what is really surprising in a way is that because there was constant criticism of how these measuring posts undermeasured, according to independent sources, um, a number of people, citizens have risen up, citizens who weren't active before. They are typically mothers of young children, a second generation of reluctant activists, if you will, who have um, appealed to their local governments to protest to the central government about the removal of these monitoring posts because they are, in a way, the last visible sign that something serious took place with continuing serious consequences. And there's something called the Go West, Come West Association. Uh, Yuki, what are, who are they and how are they uh, important to the story here? Oh, actually, perhaps Noma might be a better person. Sorry. Um, sure. Yes. Go West, Come West started up a year or two ago. So most pe- most listeners might assume that evacuees from Fukushima are people from Fukushima. Go West, Come West takes that as a step, takes the notion that a great deal of Fukushima, which 
where, by the way, um, the declaration of an emergency nuclear situation has not yet been lifted and where most of the measurements would dictate that it's a radiation-controlled area where the ordinary public should not be living. This, this you can tell just by looking at government measurements and announcements, that people who um, have begun to evacuate are not just from Fukushima, but pertinent to our story today from Tokyo, too, which has consistently had hot spots. Um, and early on, there was very disturbing reporting about drinking water, for instance. So go west, come west is a movement started by um, active, uh, activists in Tokyo who move further west, west in this case being the Kyoto-Osaka area, and urging people to, um, to f- in the, f- every, from Fukushima west, including the Tokyo metropolitan area, to leave and move further west and to try to set up a welcoming uh, group of assistants. And they are recently in some of the news because they had an action on uh, August 6th, which is the commemoration of the Hiroshima atomic bomb, and um, met heavy police presence talking about um, the relationship between the atomic bombs and the Fukushima nuclear power plant disaster and the need for evacuation and warnings about what the Tokyo Olympics mean. Well, is that... um why was there a heavy police presence at that? Why I mean, did the government comes down on this because they they don't want people talking about moving or they think this is unnecessary or uh, is it really about the 2020 Olympics, uh, Yuki? Uh, sure, um, because uh, you know, as as Norma was saying, that there is still under the declaration of a nuclear emergency situation, so that allows people to live in a place where twenty millisievolt of radiation per year uh, radiation area. Um, so, on the one hand, that declaration has not been lifted. But on the other hand, the government has to hold the Olympic Games, so it's safe, and we are having the football game there, or uh, baseball, softball game there. Um, So there is definitely this contradiction. So that goes back to the monitoring measurement again. But um, so that's the uh, implication of the Olympic Games. Well, is the government targeting uh, these activists? Are they under surveillance? Do they? Right. There's no question that activists are have been and are under surveillance. The activists I know, therefore, are very, very careful um, when they hold actions to do everything by the letter of the law to to prevent this kind of, to prevent any kind of detention, arrest from happening. Because um, although there has been enormous discouragement, like withdrawing housing support from so-called voluntary evacuees, um, and then from all evacuees, pretty much, on, on, on the grounds that Fukushima is safe now, um, there's been that kind of, I would say, pretty heavy-handed government action. Surveillance is also part of it. And in fact, what is actually, in some ways, more distressing is the mutual surveillance psychology that this puts into place, that people uh, that Yuki mentioned most of us want not to have to leave our homes under duress. Most of us would probably prefer to return to have safe everyday lives. And so that for people living in Fukushima, there's constant awareness of what their neighbors are thinking. If they take their children out for R&R, 
then they often won't need to do it almost secretly because to suggest that your children need to go elsewhere, even for a weekend, is to suggest maybe there's something wrong with where they are. So in some ways, the eyes that you're most afraid of are your neighbors. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald talking with Norma Field, a professor emeritus from the University of Chicago, and Yuki Miyamoto, an ethicist and associate professor of religious studies at DePaul. We're talking about their recent trip to Japan and Fukushima. Coming up in a few minutes, we'll be discussing India Fest Milwaukee, one of the many celebrations of India Independence Day that was yesterday. Um, I want to I mean, it seems like the people there are in a very difficult um, spot. Uh, did most decide to move back um, happily? Did, 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 when they moved back, did they do so with enthusiasm? Did they move back with – I imagine there was a range of uh, emotions of, of people who came back to the area that had been restricted. Yeah. <laughs> I of course, a great range and then let's not forget that there are many who have who are struggling um in their new spots and in, in their in places in Japan, struggling because they're not getting any government economic support anymore. Um people often move back why um duress um pressure exerted by husbands and in-laws come back. You know, it's time for our child to enter first grade or middle school or high school. Those markers of a child's um, uh, growth are often um, pressure points for mothers. Um, people give up trying to support themselves as evacuees and they move back. Um, many people move back and mothers, and if you read surveys, they try to persuade themselves you can see that they are glad um, to to be living with their families all together again, and um, so yes, they are in. They are everybody is in a terrible spot. Some people have said to evacuate is hell, to stay behind is hell. I noticed that just uh, today, the United Nations uh, made a statement saying that some of the cleanup workers. Uh, at Fukushima were at risk of exploitation, and this was done by an independent uh, investigator, a special rapporteur, who uh, looked into the situation and is worried that they're pushing these cleanup guys too hard. Well, you can imagine um, the official announcement from TEPCO and the government has been an estimated 30 to 40 years for cleanup, and, and we're not even really talking about cleanup. We're still talking about stabilizing the structure, and there are Frequent earthquakes there, um, Jerome. So every earthquake potentially risks the destabilization of of securing the site itself. So of course, there's no end to the number of workers necessary. This has been a scandal from the beginning of the layers and layers of subcontracting and the abuse entailed. I'm very glad the UN Special Rapporteur have have again. Um, announce their their views of the situation. And it might be important for listeners to know that this is the only part of the UN, the Human Rights Commission, that shows any sympathy or gives any credence to the anxieties that Fukushima people and evacuees feel. All the other UN-affiliated agencies have bent over backwards to emphasize um, how there will be no visible uh, health impact. So this is very important, and I'm glad the workers are getting this kind of attention. 
Um, there are, they've been, um, there's all the decontamination work. Now, Fukushima people, many of them are hard up. So they are the ones doing the work of cleaning up ter- soil, packing it up, um, organic materials, leaves and whatnot, putting them in these pl- plastic bags, which are now splitting. And it is now the point that there's also huge effort. You can imagine, like the monitoring posts, which are white and about, oh, a yard high, the flex, the low rows and rows of flexible container bags are a huge eyesore, and there's great weight put on making them disappear before the Olympics. So, uh, Yuki, do you want to jump in there? Oh, sure. Um, a couple of things, if I may. Um, cleanup is also, this is what we've been talking about. Actually, this is not about decontamination. This is just a trans-contamination. We don't know where to put in the end. So we are just circling around. them around. Yeah. Exactly. It's like a hot potatoes, you know, circling around. And some of them are very near place, very near the Olympic Games uh, site. And another thing is that um, raising awareness, even raising awareness of uh, radiation danger, exposure, is considered as discriminating against the people in Fukushima. So whenever we talk about radiation exposure or the danger of it, we are the ones who are discriminating against the Fukushima people. So you cannot really talk about... So what people who are claiming... That's a heavy thought. That's a pretty serious <laughs> yeah, thing. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That, and that then, brings so the that, weight of everybody down yeah, on we you. can't talk about radiation anymore. Uh, so that's the uh, kind of rhetoric has been used, which I'm very concerned about. Well, we'll have to keep our eye on what's happening with Fukushima and the run-up to the 2020 Olympics in Tokyo. Thanks very much for joining us and talking about your trip. Norma Field from the University of Chicago. She's a professor emeritus of Japanese studies there. And Yuki Miyamoto, an ethicist and associate professor of religious studies at DePaul University. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank Thank you. you. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about India Fest Milwaukee. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. India's Independence Day was yesterday, August 15th. Right there in the middle of the week, just like the Independence Day of the United States this year, people are celebrating on both sides of the Independence Day. Last weekend, Naperville did a fourth annual India Day celebration. And the big celebration in Chicago is on the 18th. It is on Devon Avenue, the traditional parade at 11 a.m. The last few years, we've been following the growth of Milwaukee's India Fest celebration. And with me is Purnima Nath. She is the founder and chairwoman president of Spindle India and the producer of the India Fest Milwaukee. Nice to see you again. Nice to see you too, Jerome. Tell us the story of India Fest Milwaukee. How did you get this thing going? Well, when we started, uh, there wasn't any platform for overall Indian population that represented uh, what 
India is about. India is most diverse country. It has tremendous amount of religious footprint as well as language footprint. So although there are different organizations who were doing their own things, things it was not as broad as what I was envisioning. So that was one uh, reason. And then I questioned why not something for everybody. Yeah, bring, bring all bring. people together and have the biggest time you can. Exactly. <laughs> That's one. And the other reason was Milwaukee is happening city to begin with. It's ethnic. It's There's so many festivals going on. Polish fest and French fest and the German fest and summer fest and etc. So the question kept ringing was why not India uh, fest? So that's how we started discussing and it um, ended up more than what I imagined actually. <laughs> <laughs> how many people are coming to India fest now? Usually we get uh, more than 10,000 people. It's a free event. Um, community is also involved. They come in, they just pick up the chair from their backyard and they just come through. Um, the whole goal is to spread across the uh, diversity and history heritage that we have and the cultural dimensions that we bring in so they can experience it. Um, so that's how we started initially. Uh, we haven't changed the operation and uh, the goals yet. So we, somehow, although it's been difficult to have it free for um, a number of years, which is not sustainable to begin with, but we are um, pushing the boundaries. Uh, what kind of things are new this year? I know you've gotten more attention. You're drawing more people. So you've, you've got new wrinkles. Absolutely. My goal was to focus on quality improvement, operational efficiencies, effectiveness. So, yeah, we have added so many different programs. Actually, a few years ago, we started doing Wisconsin Indian Singing Idol. This year, we have introducing Wisconsin Indian Dancing Idol and as well as um, India Fest Milwaukee Got Talent. So you've got a dance contest? Yes. And a singing contest? Yes. <laughs> Now, you're, you yourself are a fine singer, we've learned over the years of yes. talking with you. And last year we made you sing, and we thought we'd make you sing again. Sure. Because <laughs> we've, we've loaded in some music, and you're going to do a couple of minutes. On the spot. On the spot. Um, tell us, what, what song are we hearing here? Why, why are we picking this? Oh, my God. So... On the way, I met Steve, and he said, Pranima, I want you to sing the full song over here if you can. I'm like, on the spot? All right, let's do it. And, and then we started talking about different topics. And this particular song is very dear to my heart. It's because it's about life. It's about what life's supposed to be or how it is actually and how you can overcome your difficulties and struggles and obstacles. And the reason why it is uh, dear to my heart is because it aligns with what I go through day-to-day -day basis. There's a lot of issues, a lot of problems, a lot of... Um, my life's a cakewalk. <laughs> I come in here every day and it's just joy and love. <laughs> Which is what I'm sorry it's that you're having a bad time. <laughs> It's supposed to be like that. Uh, but in reality, these are the positive notes that, uh, you know, how you can overcome difficulties in life. So this song, I think it's very positive. Um, I think your audience will also like it because there's a meaning towards it. It's not traditional love, uh, love song from Bollywood. <laughs>
हंस के उस पार जाना the founder of India Fest Milwaukee, they're singing on the spot with us about the roadblocks, the struggles of life, the oceans of sorrow that are out there. Uh, that, it was terrific. Thank you. <laughs> how long did you sing for? Did you train for this? Did you? How do you do this? Oh, my God. I, uh, I'm not a trained singer. I learned singing from my dad. He does uh, kirtan, which is uh, devotional kirtans that happens at home. Uh, that's where I learned how to play uh, harmonium, play uh, instruments and stuff. But whatever I sing, it's because of him. <laughs> now, at India Fest, you've got some big singing things going on yeah. this year. Yeah, yes. Um, we have three concerts going on this year. We're bringing Ghazal and Raga. 
and we're also doing... Uh, What's ghazal and raga? Ghazal, it's a traditional, actually poetry-based. And these poetries are mostly written in Urdu. And it's very beautiful, very close to Hindi as well. But the dialects and the wordings, it's uh, very poetic, very poetic. So the ghazal is based on that, uh, mostly quite big poets. Um, like Javed, Javed Akhtar, and there's a lot of people who actually are quite famous over there, who Gulzar is one that comes to my mind. Um, they write, and they actually, saw this poetry then becomes song, and sometimes they place it in Bollywood movies, They or sometimes they come up as a albums and things like this. So this is uh, sit-down, harmonium, singing with a tabla usually, in the back and there will be Tanpura. So that's the atmosphere, the ghazal is. You also have a a fusion of instruments in a concert? Yeah, this time we are bringing in uh, violin that we have never brought in before, as well as uh, mridangam, which is a traditional Indian, sort of like a tabla, but uh, together, basically, that's what it says. We'll have sitar and tabla along. So there's four instruments that is going to be, uh, usually they call it as a jugalbandi, uh, it's like a fusion of instruments going on. So we'll have that concert. And now uh, the, uh, we will also have Bollywood beats and uh, music. The ever-popular Bollywood beats <laughs> music. Absolutely, absolutely. We're talking about India Fest Milwaukee with Purnima Nath. It's happening on Saturday, August 18th from 11 a.m. to 9 p.m. in uh, Milwaukee's Humboldt Park on Howell Avenue in Milwaukee. I understand Scott Walker got involved this year and made it India Day. <laughs> yes, uh, it was quite an accomplishment from a perspective of efforts. He recognized the efforts of uh, Spindle India and India Fest uh, Milwaukee and how we are bringing communities together. And the fact that we also celebrate uh, largely Independence Day and flag of India, he recognized uh, August 15th as a state of Wisconsin India Day, which is a quite a milestone for myself as well as the entire uh, Indian population. And it sounds like Tourism Wisconsin got behind uh, India Fest too? Yes, uh, that's another milestone that this year I can uh, check off is uh, Tourism Wisconsin is much uh, focused around the economic growth as well as bringing in folks to the state. So what they saw, the opportunity was that our work is actually creating a lot of uh, awareness and it's positive, right? So ethnicity is increasing. People are understanding what kind of populations are there. Uh, Through our work, we also engage corporations, we engage uh, um, local businesses, small businesses, and obviously businesses from other states. So from a tourism perspective, it's uh, quite a milestone for us. Uh, They supported us, and I am quite thankful to them. And I also understand that some of the uh, restaurants from Chicago come up to India Fest now? Yes. For the last couple of years, they do. And there's a particularly uh, restaurant named Priya Restaurant from Chicago, as well as uh, Vishnu Vilas. They do come quite regularly. There are other restaurants also. They come on and off, but they're involved. So there's always great Indian food at Indian Fest. Absolutely. It is the best food in the Absolutely. world. Absolutely. Once you taste Indian food, I don't know. It's hard to go back. Go, go somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> you just get sucked into it. <laughs> Well, I hope a lot of people come up to India Fest and check it out in Milwaukee. They can take the Amtrak up there. It's a fun ride to Milwaukee on the Amtrak. They can drive. It's very easy to get there, and it's uh, fun.
a drive is up only one and a half hours maximum, no matter where you are from. So it's quite accessible. It's fun. The entire day, the festival is quite different because not only we do cultural program, which was going on like over 10 hours of cultural program. And we also have food. Obviously, we have a lot of activities going on. So if somebody wants to plan for an entire day, they can stay close by hotels as well. So it's accessible, but quite different because it's not just focused on particular artists. That's quite big in India and just promotion happens for them as well. It's inclusive. Anybody can come through. They can understand the culture better and actually experience what India is because visually, aesthetically, uh, from sound bites, from taste buds, you can pretty much experience the wholeness of what India might be. But the moment you enter, you can smell the spices. You can smell the aromas of uh, beautiful foods or uh, delicious foods getting uh, cooked there. It's just different. I've been to different uh, festivals over there in uh, Milwaukee. It's absolutely different and uniquely set up as well. So anybody who comes up there, I'm sure I can guarantee it will be awesome. Pranima Nath from uh, India Fest Milwaukee. It is on Saturday, 11 a.m. to 9 p.m. in Humboldt Park in uh, Milwaukee. Thanks a lot for joining us. Good to see you, and people can get more information at indiafestmilwaukee.org. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll have our film contributor, Milos Stalik, in, and we will try to interest you in some of the terrific film festivals that are ongoing in the Chicago area. There's a Igmar Bergman Film Festival at the Siskel Film Center, and it's got a few key films coming up, and we'll talk about Igmar Bergman's statement on war and the victims of war. We're also going to talk about the Chicago International Silent Film Festival. The Silent Film Fest is uh, ongoing this weekend. There's a film about Rin Tin Tin that's showing this weekend. A silent film festival tomorrow on Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Shazmin Hussein and Viviana Garcia Blanco for production assistance. And thanks to Shelley Steffens for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.